But when somebody comes up with oppo research, right? They come up with oppo research. Oh, let's call the FBI. That's President Donald Trump in a 2019 interview with ABC News chief anchor George Stephanopoulos, who asked the president, would he accept from a foreign country damaging information on a political opponent? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. If I thought there was something wrong, I'd go maybe to the FBI if I thought there was something wrong. But you go and talk honestly to congressmen. They all do it. They always have. And that's the way it is. It's called oppo research. I'm Joseph Radota, and when I got my start as an opposition researcher in my 20s, people only whispered the phrase opposition research. And now it's everywhere. I'm Kate Anderson Brower. As a reporter for Bloomberg News, I covered the White House, and I've written a book about vice presidents. And in that book, I devoted an entire chapter to the ways that candidates choose their running mates. That really intense vetting process gripped me, and it made me want to know more about this world of opposition research. What this was was a president of the United States looking for dirt, opposition research on an opponent from a foreign leader. This is opposition research. This is to try and tear down the president. Potentially embarrassing opposition research. Oppo researchers hunt for damaging information that can turn an election. The campaign donor who got the plum appointment, the crony who landed the lucrative government contract, or the policy idea that went horribly wrong. Oppo researchers do what journalists and writers do. They scour the internet, scan newspapers, dig through public libraries and government archives. Sometimes they even interview sources. Some people call Oppo research the dark art of American politics. We are going to dig into the secret world of Oppo research. We'll meet Oppo researchers as they share their greatest hits when they discovered something that took down a candidate. We'll find out what it's actually like for oppo researchers to do this work and how high the stakes can be. Having somebody threaten to behead you is not super fun. Opposition research. Opposition research. Opposition research. Opposition research. The plain fact is sometimes what is uncovered in opposition research turns out to be true. I'm Kate Anderson Brower. I'm Joseph Rodota, and this is Oppophile. Hi, Joe. Hello, Kate. Good morning. So, Joe, how did you get into this line of work? So I was an appointee in uh, the Reagan administration, and I heard that the Republican National Committee was calling around, and they were looking for analysts for a new group of people who would be put in charge of researching Reagan's opponents in the 84 re-election. And it sounded really fascinating. And I applied. I'm a history major. And I got the job. And and then I stayed in the field. I started a firm and worked for a couple of candidates in California running for governor. And one of those uh, was my last partisan campaign. And that was the re-election campaign of Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, Kate, when I read your book, First in Line, I was really drawn to that chapter you put in about vetting. And I wonder if you could walk us through what drew you to that topic uh, in your book. You know, I was really interested in um, the law firms that are brought in and this kind of idea that these white-collar lawyers take time out to do this pro bono because it's really kind of fun for them. I mean, the head of um, vetting for Hillary Clinton described it to me as being a cross between a private eye and a voyeur. It's something that you don't really 
think a lot about. I think you always wonder um, about the public statements that these people make and if they come back to haunt them. But the idea that there'd be actual digging was something that really intrigued me. Well, now, so there are a couple of differences here. First of all, opposition researchers always need to be paid. I think the other difference is uh, the footprint. So an opposition researcher, an oppo researcher, goes about his or her work and ideally it leaves no no fingerprints. Uh, so I had this boss in the 1984 campaign who was from the military and he had a saying, anything that can be seen can be hit and anything that can be hit can be killed. So in this podcast, Joe and I are going to go through the history of oppo research and modern politics, and we're going to be looking at the campaigns of John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon and going up through the Reagan era and up until today. And then we're going to follow this practice of oppo research from looking in libraries and printing out things from microfiche to putting things into databases to scouring the internet and then today scouring social media. And I think we, we're going to look at how this has changed over time and our campaigns more worried about it now that everything is out there. So I think we want to be really clear about what we're focusing on and it's oppo research and not journalism. Journalists work for media organizations and go out to find the story wherever it may lead. An oppo researcher works for a client, a candidate for office, or a political committee, and is seeking to construct and support a story that's beneficial to the campaign. A lot of the most famous stories are these scandals, like Gary Hart and his dalliance with Donna Rice, journalism. But there are some other instances where candidates are brought down through oppo research. Right. So uh, same year as Gary Hart's revealed uh, having this affair, is 1988, and that's when oppo researchers with the Dukakis campaign discover that Joe Biden has been lifting sections of his speeches from Neil Kinnock, who's a labor leader in um, the United Kingdom, and that brings down the Biden campaign. That's classic oppo research. The first story we're going to delve into here is about one of the earliest cases of oppo research and the incredibly high stakes involved. It is about a campaign where the target of the research was not the candidate. It was the candidate's wife. She was dragged through the mud. The year was 1828. Andrew Jackson was running for president against the incumbent, John Quincy Adams. And Andrew's wife, Rachel Jackson, found herself in the crosshairs of a vicious partisan attack. She was absolutely horrified, embarrassed, depressed, and people say this actually killed her. It's a story of the devastating personal toll opposition research can take. Our first guest is Susan Swain. She's the co-CEO of C-SPAN and author of three books, including First Ladies, Presidential Historians, and the Lives of 45 Iconic Women. Well, if you think politics today is rough, 1828 was a year when you had a real brawler and street fighter in Andrew Jackson against the two really tough fighters of John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay. I think they were uh, surprised, but perhaps shouldn't have been, that Rachel Donaldson Jackson, his wife, became an issue in the campaign. Mm -hmm. Theirs was an amazing love story, uh, but it was beyond the bounds of polite society at the time. And at the age of 18, she married Louis Robards, who was, by all accounts, a 
terrible man, and it was a very bad marriage that ended up lasting about four years, but was unhappy much of the time. And she tried to leave several times and ultimately went back to her family, who welcomed her back because they agreed that it was a terrible situation for Rachel. At the time she moved back, her father had died. Her mother had, rem- had moved back to Nashville, and she was taking in boarders. And one of those boarders was Andrew Jackson. From the beginning, apparently, there was quite a love match between Andrew Jackson and Rachel, and she thought that she was divorced. She thought that when she left Robards that he had started the process of officially ending their marriage, but he had not. So the two of them, Rachel and Andrew Jackson, fall in love, and when they come back to Nashville, they announce they're married. And it really wasn't an issue for more than 30 years until Jackson was seeking the presidency. And again, because this was such a blood match between him and John Quincy Adams, people that were real supporters of Adams were looking for ways to get to Jackson. And Rachel Donaldson Jackson provided that outlet. There was a newspaper publisher in Cincinnati who uh, found this dirt about their marriage and sent out the word through his publication that, in fact, she was an adulteress. How did John Quincy Adams directly get involved in this? I mean, you said they did nothing to stop it. They were uh, more covert than overt that they could have. And we see this in politics today where uh, a campaign could say, I don't want any of that from my supporters. And they did nothing. So what happened is that Jackson really felt that they were the ones that were responsible for it. He was less angry at the newspaper publisher than he was at Henry Clay and at John Quincy Adams. The editor of the Cincinnati Gazette, Charles Hammond, was backing John Quincy Adams. Hammond produced 30-year-old court records from Virginia in which Rachel was described as living in adultery with another man. Is anything known about the damage control operation? Well, it, it was possible to lay out the facts about whether or not anybody would listen to the laying out of the facts at that time and the ability to disseminate it beyond the scope of a, a you know couple of friendly newspapers was a lot more difficult than it was today. But all of the uh, people advising him said, keep your eyes on the prize. And so he stood back, uh, but ultimately he didn't forget. And sadly, on December 22nd, she collapsed of a heart attack and died. The sad thing is, in those, those days before, there's a quote that's so poignant about her that she said she'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to go to Washington, D.C., and fate delivered that outcome for her. Jackson was, felt it was his duty to defend her honor, and in fact, she was also a pretty tough cookie, and it's hard to judge medical history, and the biggest impact on cardiac issues is stress. She wasn't the politician in the family, wasn't expecting to have this. But the important thing is that Jackson thought that it led to her death. Andrew Jackson won the 1828 election. But when he arrived in Washington later that year to take the oath of office, he broke tradition and refused to meet with the outgoing president, John Quincy Adams. So Jackson then buries his wife and then comes to Washington. Did he leave a message for, for the country at that moment? Well, for all of time, her tombstone is engraved with this saying, a being so gentle and so virtuous, slander might wound, but could not dishonor. 1828 seems like, you know, 
eons and eons ago and that there would be absolutely nothing in common with the politics of today. But it's surprisingly very similar. Um, The gloves were really off in that campaign. It was very tough, very personal. And we see that happening right now in 2020. This really is the start of modern American politics. People look at that campaign and think that's where modern media management for presidential campaigns begins, where brand of the candidate becomes essential. And then to have this story where that's also the birth of Oppo research is really kind of fascinating. It's really interesting, the emotional toll that it took on her. It's, it's harsher today, really, honestly. I mean, she didn't really succumb to her illness until she was about to move to Washington and become First Lady. And so she could no longer be shielded from these headlines. And today you can never be shielded from the headlines. You know, during Watergate, there's some great stories about Pat Nixon's staff not letting her see the Washington Post and like shielding her or trying to from what was going on. But you never can really be isolated anymore. These first ladies today are very, very strong, and I think they do put up with and deal with a lot of criticism, and they are not shielded from anything like they used to be. After what happened to Rachel Jackson, you might think oppo researchers would stick to candidates and leave their wives out of it. But of course, that's not the case. Our next story is about the wives of two men who ran for president in 2016. My name is Liz Mayer. Liz Mayer and an operative named Rick Wilson ran a Republican opposition research super PAC in the closing days of the 2016 primary, which they called Make America Awesome. It was opposed to the nomination of Donald Trump. One of the obvious things that I think any opposition researcher does, you know, you're going to take a look at the family of the target, right? Like, that's a natural thing to do. And if you went and plugged Melania Trump into Google Images... The image that we used in that ad came up quite a lot. On March 21, 2016, news outlets reported that Mayor's Super PAC had been running ads on Facebook targeting Mormons prior to the Utah primary with a photo of a nude Melania Trump from her days as a fashion model on some sort of pelt with the caption, Meet Melania Trump, your next first lady, or you could support Ted Cruz. On March 22nd, Trump tweeted, Wow, Ted Cruz, that is some low-level ad you did using a picture of Melania in a GQ shoot. Be careful, or I will spill the beans on your wife. Then Trump replaced that tweet with another tweet, adding, Be careful, Lion Ted. Did you think that you would be getting the backlash that you got? Were you surprised? You know, I think that our calculation at the time was fairly correct that there was a good chance that Trump would go absolutely mental. Ted Cruz responded, pick of your wife, not from us. If you attack Heidi, you're more of a coward than I thought. Hashtag classless. That ad was completely inappropriate and we had nothing to do with it. It's a separate group. It wasn't our campaign. It wasn't even a super PAC affiliated with us in any way. It's a totally separate group. I don't know the person who did it. I've never spoken with him. We have no involvement with him whatsoever. Trump replied in a tweet, I didn't start the fight with lion Ted Cruz over the GQ cover pick of Melania. He did. He knew the pack was putting it out. Hence, Lion Ted. It was framed in such a way like it was really a terrible thing, yeah. and it was sent to a certain group, and I thought it was disgraceful. I wrote, I said, be careful, because otherwise I'll have to start talking about, you know, your situation. 
Trump is referring here to news reports that Heidi Cruz, the wife of Senator Ted Cruz, battled with depression after the couple moved from Washington to Texas many years earlier. The ad was aimed at conservative Mormon voters in Utah and may have helped Cruz to win with over 69 percent of the vote there last night. Trump's reference to spilling the beans on Heidi Cruz may refer to her bout with depression. It happened in 2005. Police responded to a 911 call about a woman in a pink shirt sitting next to an expressway. It was there they found Mrs. Cruz sitting 10 feet from speeding traffic with her head in her hands. If you're wondering how we got to this point, you have to go back to Liz Mayer and the Facebook ad of a nude Melania Trump. We didn't want to have a bunch of these particular targeted voters going and voting for John Kasich and reducing Ted Cruz's potential delegate count because at that point he was the only person that could stop Donald Trump. Liz Mayer received threats, many of them very serious. By the time that that ad ran, I had a pretty good understanding that we had foreign actors who were playing in the social media space who were going to go ballistic. Obviously, having somebody threaten to behead you uh, is not exactly normal course of business, even in this one. And that was not super fun. Um, you know, we had to put some security precautions in place with regard to my family. Um, my mom not being particularly happy about a threatening phone call that she got, um, although I, I expect the caller probably got as good as they gave. Looking back on this moment from the 2016 presidential campaign, you might wonder, does Liz Mayer have any regrets? I cannot remember exactly how much we spent on it. I want to say it was $300, maybe less. In the end, you know, the amount of earned media that it secured, I think we were talking about something in the vein of $3 million, which I think makes it the most cost-effective political ad in American history. In the next episode of Oppo File, we join a group of Republican Oppo researchers in 1988 as they descend on Boston to collect documents about the likely Democratic nominee for president, Michael Dukakis, the governor of Massachusetts. Really trying to go up there under the radar, we opted to rent a Winnebago. These Oppo researchers are particularly interested in a controversial policy to grant state prisoners weekend furloughs. One of those prisoners, a man named Willie Horton, will become a central character in the 1988 campaign, an infamous symbol of political hardball, and the subject of a deathbed confession. Oppofile is produced by Kate Anderson Brower, Kristen Belden, and me, Joseph Rodota. Our production manager is Caitlin Bruce. Our sound engineer is Jeremy Dalmas, and our editorial consultant is Nina Gensler Debs. Andrew Greenwood is our designer, and our website is by Edgar Guerra. We'd like to thank Workhouse Media, Joaquin Alvarado, and Studio To Be, Chris George, District Productive, Capital Public Radio, Our Street Recording, and our listeners and guests. If you enjoyed this episode of Oppofile, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, and share Oppofile with your friends. Join us for the next episode of Oppofile. <laughs>